is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. And today's story is a This Day in History story brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And it is actually two stories and comes to us from a great friend of the show, Bob Crowther, bringing us an illustrious American tale that begins with the Chicago mob in the 1920s and ends with a heroic feat by a man who was born on this day in history in 1914. Take it away, Bob. Let me tell you two stories about two men who come from my town, Chicago. Story number one. Many years ago, Al Capone virtually owned Chicago. Capone wasn't famous for anything heroic. He was notorious for enmeshing the Windy City in everything from bootleg booze and prostitution to murder. Capone had a lawyer named Easy Eddie. He was his lawyer for a good reason. Eddie was very good. In fact, Eddie's skill at legal maneuvering kept Big Al out of jail for a long time. To show his appreciation, Capone paid him very well. Not only was the money big, but Eddie got special dividends. For instance, he and his family occupied a fenced-in mansion with live-in help and all the conveniences of the day. The estate was so large that it filled an entire Chicago city block. Eddie lived the high life of the Chicago mob and gave little consideration to the atrocity that went on around him. Eddie did have one soft spot, however. He had a son that he loved dearly. Eddie saw to it that his young son had the best of everything, clothes, cars, and a good education. Nothing was withheld. Price was no object. And despite his involvement with organized crime, Eddie even tried to teach him right from wrong. Eddie wanted his son to be a better man than he was. Yet with all his wealth and influence, there were two things he couldn't give his son, that he couldn't pass on a good name and a good example. One day, Easy Eddie reached a difficult decision. He decided he'd go to the authorities and tell the truth about Al Scarface Capone. Some say he did it to save himself. Others believe it was to clean up his tarnished name and offer his son some semblance of integrity. Maybe it was both. He testified against the mob, and he knew that the cost could be great. Within the year, Easy Eddie's life ended in a blaze of gunfire on a lonely Chicago street. But he may have given his son the greatest gift he could offer at the greatest price he would ever pay. Story number two. World War II produced many heroes. One such man was Lieutenant Commander Butch O'Hare. He was a fighter pilot assigned to the aircraft carrier Lexington in the South Pacific. One day, his entire squadron was sent on a mission. After he was airborne, he looked at his fuel gauge and realized that someone had forgotten to top off his fuel tank. He would not have enough fuel to complete his mission and get back to his ship. His flight leader told him to return to the carrier. Reluctantly, he dropped out of formation and headed back to the fleet. He was returning to the mothership when he saw something that turned his blood cold. 
a squadron of Japanese aircraft was speeding their way toward the American fleet. The American fighters were gone on a sortie and the fleet was all but defenseless. He couldn't reach his squadron and bring them back in time to save the fleet, nor could he warn the fleet of the approaching danger. There was only one thing to do, he must somehow divert them from the fleet. Laying aside all thoughts of personal safety, he dove into the formation of Japanese planes. Wing-mounted 50 calibers blazed as he charged in, attacking one surprise enemy plane and then another. Butch wove in and out of the now broken formation and fired at as many planes as possible until all his ammunition was finally spent. Undaunted, he continued the assault. He dove at the planes, trying to clip a wing or tail in hopes of damaging as many enemy planes as possible and rendering them unfit to fly. Finally, the exasperated Japanese squadron took off in another direction. Deeply relieved, Butch O'Hare and his tattered fighter limped back to the carrier. Upon arrival, he reported in and related the event surrounding his return. The film from the gun camera mounted on his plane told the tale. It showed the extent of Butch's daring attempt to protect his fleet. He had, in fact, destroyed five enemy aircraft. This took place on February 20th, 1942. And for that action, Butch became the Navy's first ace of World War II and the first naval aviator to win the Congressional Medal of Honor. For heroism and extraordinary achievement in aerial flight, for distinguished service as pilot of an airplane of a bombing squad. His courageous actions were in keeping with the highest traditions of the United States. A year later, Butch was killed in aerial combat at the age of 29. His hometown would not allow the memory of this World War II hero to fade. And today, O'Hare Airport in Chicago is named in tribute to the courage of this great man. So the next time you find yourself at O'Hare International, give some thought to visiting Butch's memorial, displaying his statue and his Medal of Honor. It's located between Terminals 1 and 2. So what the hell do these two stories have to do with each other? Butch O'Hare was Easy Eddie's son. And a special thanks to Bob brother for giving us that story and sharing it. And if you've got stories like that, send them our way. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. They are our favorite shows, and you are the hour in Our American Stories. And by the way, what is a reputation worth? And to have all that wealth and to have all that privilege and to have nothing to show for it. And if anything, really awful things to show for it. And what a sacrifice the dad made. Did he do it for honor? Did he do it for other reasons? Who knows? But let's just err on the side of possibly the honor and doing the right thing for his family. Put Joe Harris story here on Our American Stories. As I went down in the river to pray, studying about that good old way and who shall 
there the starry crown good lord show me the way oh sisters let's go down let's go down come on down oh sisters let's go down down in the river to pray this is our american stories and our next story is a story about love and family faith and freedom. It's brought to us by our own Greg Hengler and the good folks at the Harriet Tubman Underground Railroad Visitor Center in Church Creek, Maryland. Let's take a listen. On July 4th, 1776, a marvelous experiment in democracy was conceived. With a firm reliance on the protection of the divine providence, its noble, if imperfect parents pledged their lives, fortunes, and sacred honor to bring to fruition this heroic idea. A new government in which all men are created equal, endowed by their creator with the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. But decades later, deep within the backbone of the American economy, A large, protruding tumor was causing unimaginable misery. Here's historian James Horton. By 1840, cotton was the most valuable thing this entire nation exported. No, it was more valuable than everything else this nation exported put together. By 1860, the worth of slaves, the dollar value of slaves, was greater than the dollar value of all the banks, all the railroads, all the manufacturing facilities of this nation put together. Slavery was no sideshow in American history. It was the main event. Slave owners have rightfully earned their wicked reputation. Strangely, the largest pro-slavery institution, the one that made slavery law and kept it in order, has consistently been absent from the abolition educator's list of evildoers. Don't forget that these people were held on the plantation by more than just the white families on the plantation. That ultimately, if you had tried to defeat the institution of slavery, you would have had to defeat the power of the plantation, the power of the local government, the power of the state government, and ultimately the power of the national government. That slavery was protected by the full force of the United States of America so that when you think about people running away or people striking out against the institution, they are embarking on a pretty ambitious uh, journey. That journey was conducted on tracks. Those tracks were part of a system of escape that became known as the Underground Railroad. But like grape nuts, the Underground Railroad was neither underground, nor was it a railroad. Here's Harriet Tubman's scholar, James McGowan. There was an often told story that it started around the mid-1830s after the building of the railroads uh, started in this country. Uh, Some slave catchers were chasing a slave, and I believe the area was Ohio. And uh, the slave ran away into a wooded area. And uh, the slave catchers followed him there, and uh, he suddenly disappeared. It was as if he ran away on an underground railroad. Well, it became a joke, but the joke caught on. 
when the uh, abolitionists and the anti-slavery people got involved with helping slaves escape, they took that term on. And uh, those who were helping slaves escape, they called conductors. These were the people who went right into slave territory and uh, got the slaves and brought them out. And when they brought them out, they brought them to places where they could get food and shelter. And these places were houses or barns where abolitionists and anti-slavery people were at. And they called these houses stations. And the people who lived in these houses and who provided this uh, information and this stuff, they called them station masters. And then others who became involved, like they, for example, they contributed money. They called them stockholders. And those who watched, they called them pilots. Any term that they used in the railroad, they used to describe the, the people who worked in the Underground Railroad. In an effort to survive and maintain better lives, enslaved Americans turned to someone they already trusted and relied upon throughout their lives. Steal away to Jesus. Pennsylvania had been chartered by William Penn in 1682 and heavily settled by the Quakers, a Christian organization who had condemned the practice of slavery. With the religious revivals of the 17 and 1800s, called Great Awakenings, abolition spread into Delaware. Here's historian Bradley Skelcher. There was a belief that American colonists had lost their spirituality and religious itinerant ministers traveled around this region preaching the gospel. As a part of that Great Awakening, more and more people began to encourage their fellow church members to question the morality of owning their fellow human beings. In the end, enslaved Americans ran not so much from the cruelty of their master, but toward that most fundamental of all human rights, freedom. As Americans, we want to think of ourselves as really priding ourselves on personal freedom and priding ourselves on being willing to help other people achieve freedom. And so the Underground Railroad in that regard becomes the all-American story, the story of those who refuse to accept slavery and those who refuse to accept the denial of other people's freedom. Sheep, sheep, don't you know the road? Yes, my Lord, I know Prepare yourself. We are about to go back in time and walk in the footsteps of one of America's greatest heroes. And I prayed to God to make me strong and able to fight. And that's what I've always prayed for, ever since. Harriet Tubman. We all know her name. But who was this woman? Harriet Tubman was born into slavery in 1822 and raised in eastern Maryland with four brothers and four sisters in a 20 by 20 foot slave cabin with no beds and a dirt floor. She suffered decades of beatings, neglect, and fear, and saw three of her four sisters sold on the auction block, never to see them again. As strong as she was, she was also fragile. 
after getting her forehead split open from a two-pound weight thrown by a slave owner at a village store, Harriet struggled with frequent seizures and blinding headaches. Name your price. In 1849, Harriet's slave master, Edward Brodus, recognized her diminished capacity and tried unsuccessfully to sell her. I don't know, Edward. She don't look too healthy to me. In spite of this, she began to pray for her master. Harriet's faith was the foundation that everything in her life was built on. Not an abstract idea of Christianity, but an active, constant communication with the Almighty. She sought her master's conversion. Oh, dear Lord, change that man's heart and make him a Christian. I prayed all night long for my master till the first of March. And all the time he was bringing people to look at me and trying to sell me. One day, to her horror, she learned that she would be sent to a chain gang in the far south. The tone of her prayers shifted. So I began to pray. Oh, Lord, if you ain't never gonna change that man's heart, kill him, Lord, and take him out the way. The prayer proved prophetic. Tubman's 48-year-old master died suddenly one week after the prayer, and she was filled with remorse. Oh, I would give the world full of silver and gold if I had it to bring that poor soul back. I would give everything. But he was gone. I couldn't pray for him no more. There was one of two things I had a right to. Liberty or death. If I couldn't have one, I would have the other. And when we come back, more on the life of Harriet Tubman. This is Our American Stories. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on, help me stand. I am tired, I am weak, I am worn. Through the storm, through the night, lead me on to the light. Take my hand. Precious Lord, lead me home. And we return to the story of Harriet Tubman. And by the way, you can catch all of our work at OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Let's continue with the story. In 1849, at the age of 27, she heard the Lord's voice urging her to flee northward. 
after an initial attempt to escape failed when her two brothers lost courage and forced her to return. She set out again two days later by herself, hiding during daylight hours and traveling by night, fixing her eyes on the North Star for direction until she made it to Pennsylvania's free soil. This 100-mile escape on foot north through the Underground Railroad took a week. What makes Harriet so unique is that after she escaped, she did the unthinkable. She went back. Over 11 years, she made 13 return trips to the South and helped deliver over 300 family and friends to freedom. Yes, I made my way out of slavery and into the promised land. I boarded that train and found my freedom. But I realized straight away that my freedom meant nothing if my family wasn't free neither. That's why I come back, for my beloved, for my blood. And when I come back and my family can't make that train, I don't waste a trip. I bring friends and friends of friends back to the promised land. And I can say what most conductors can't say. I never ran my train off the track and I never lost a passenger. Harriet never lost because, as she said, her God maintains a perfect record. In December 1850, Tubman executed her first mission, the rescue of her niece, Kasiah, and her two children, a son and an infant daughter, who were scheduled to be sold on the auction block. With the help of Kasiah's free husband, John, Harriet arranged an unexpected and daring escape. On the steps of the Dorchester County Courthouse in Maryland, the crowd gathered that day. Kasiah was led up the block in front of those old courthouse steps. The bidding started. Kasiah's husband, John, stood in the crowd. Their eyes met. And John raised his hand and bid on the woman and children he loved. John won the bid, but he had no money. God must have been watching. Just then, the auctioneer up and decided to go to lunch. What's more, he forgot to chain Kasiah up. Psst, now go, go. Kasiah, John, and their children hid in the nearby house of a white woman. They waited till nightfall and sprinted to the waterfront. Together, they boarded a small boat. Mother, father, and children in a silent sailboat crossing the wide Chesapeake. They hid in Baltimore five weeks until Harriet got them train tickets to Philadelphia. 
they eventually made it all the way to Canada, safe from the long arm of slavery. She always made rescue attempts in the winter, but avoided going into plantations. Instead, she waited for escaping slaves, to whom she had sent messages, to meet her eight or ten miles away. Slaves would leave plantations on Saturday nights, and because of the Sunday Sabbath, they wouldn't be missed until Monday morning. Only then did their reward signs get posted, which would then be taken down immediately by men Tubman had hired. Tubman also carried a gun, a six-shooter, and was not afraid to use it. She felt her revolver offered some protection from the slave catchers and their dogs. And Tubman demanded strict obedience from her fugitives. A slave who returned to his master would likely be forced to reveal information that would compromise her mission. One time, a man gave out the second night. His feet were so swollen. He couldn't go any further. He'd rather go back and die if he must. I said, I was going to lay a bullet in him if he didn't move. Henry, get up. We's got to move on. Remember, Henry, dead Negroes tell no tales. When he heard that, <laughs> he jumped up right away and went as well as anybody. Henry made it to freedom. And years later, Harriet was asked whether she would actually kill a reluctant escapee. Yes, because if he was weak enough to give out, he'd be weak enough to betray us all and all who helped us. And do you think I let so many die just for one coward man? So the Lord said, go down. Harriet Tubman earned the nickname Moses because just as Moses followed the voice of God while leading the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, she too led so many of her people from bondage in the house of slavery to the promised land of freedom along the Underground Railroad. The world, see, don't make sense. It's broken. So the slaves, we take on another perspective. We see by faith. Our faith means everything. There's more to reality than a person's eyes can see. You hear this faith in the spiritual songs, a weeping, a praying, a pouring out of emotion and pain, and somehow of hope. Even though we enslaved chained, whipped. Hope still lives. She used spiritual songs as coded messages, warning escaping slaves of danger or directing them toward a safe path. Harriet felt God protected and hid her during the time she had to lie in a wet swamp or bury herself in a potato field. When God provided safe passage, she always gave him the glory. I heard God speaking to me, saw his angels, and I saw my dreams. 
there were times I knew things for they was going to happen. I could see trouble coming and I could go the other way. There was times I fell into sleep but was completely awake. More aware than when I was awake. Things I can't even describe, child. Things I can't even say. And when we come back, the rest of the story, Harriet Tubman's story, here on Our American Stories. final segment of this Harriet Tubman story. Let's pick up where we last left off. In one instance, in 1856, the word spread through the countryside, she's here! And four young men answered the call. What you men want is a bounty hunter. As they were making their escape, they saw posters with a $2,000 reward for their capture on them. As they made their way through the woods... Harriet suddenly stopped. God told me to stop, so I stopped. He told me to leave the road and turn left. We came to a stream, but no way across. The young men, they said it was too deep, the water too cold. And I said no such thing as too cold and walked in. Water made it up to my shoulder. But then I came out the other side. The boys followed. Later, Harriet learned that a group of desperate men seeking the $2,000 reward had been waiting on the path they were traveling and planned to seize them. If she had not responded to God's still small voice, they would have been captured. And the $40,000 reward slave owners posted for her capture was always in the back of her mind. Harriet learned about the posters, which described her age, height, and that she couldn't read or write. Once in a train station, Harriet heard two men talking about her. They were trying to decide if she was the woman in the poster. Harriet was carrying a book. She opened it and pretended to read. The men then decided that it couldn't be her. Tubman became a friend of many of the best-known abolitionists and their sympathizers. White religious crusader John Brown referred to her in his letters as one of the best and bravest persons on this continent, General Tubman as we call her. 
Here's professor of constitutional law, Paul Finkelman and James Horton. The people who are involved in the Underground Railroad are breaking a federal law. Uh, what they would have, of course, made the argument, and they did it all the time, is that there was a higher law, the law of God. It was dangerous to be involved with the Underground Railroad, no matter what color you were. I mean, there are white people who spent years of their lives in jail. Here's Tubman scholar Judith Bentley, historian Clara Small, and again, James McGowan discussing Tubman's relationship with one of the most prominent figures in the history of the Underground Railroad, a devout white Christian named Thomas Garrett. When she started going back to bring more people uh, out of the Eastern Shore, uh, she needed financial backing. She needed places to stay. She needed contacts, and Garrett was that, that contact. Thomas Garrett had money. He had social position. And as a result, he was given Harriet money. He also gave her uh, passageway and shoes, and clo- as well as clothing and food. He would tell this story in his letters to two ladies in Scotland who were sending money over to Harriet Tubman, how she came to his house and practically demanded money. She would say to him, for example, well, I know you've got money for me because God said so. And he would tease her. He would say, well, how do you know I got money for you, Harriet? You know, I give my money to most of the black people here in Wilmington, and I don't have any money. She said, oh, no, you've got money for me, and you've got shoes because God told me. And he would be nonplussed at her saying this, but he, he would have it. God bless you, Mr. Garrett said this of Harriet. I never met any person of any color who had more confidence in the voice of God as spoken direct to her soul. And her faith in a supreme power truly was great. During the Civil War, Tubman served as a nurse, laundress, and spy with the Union forces. She taught freed black women how to make things that they could sell in order to earn a living. Harriet Tubman would not be satisfied until every person could experience true freedom. After the war, she made her home in Auburn, New York, and despite numerous honors, spent her last years in poverty until a white woman named Sarah Bradford visited Harriet and listened to her life story. In 1869, Sarah Bradford published Harriet's biography, Scenes in the Life of Harriet Tubman, and another in 1886, The Moses of Her People. All the money they earned went to Harriet. Finally, on March 10th, 1913, the 93-year-old Harriet Tubman caught pneumonia and knew the end was near. She asked her friends and family to gather around her bed, as she had done so many times before. Harriet raised her voice and gave instruction to everyone. Sing, swing low, sweet chariot to me. The eyes of those in the room brimmed with tears, and the people tried to stifle sobs as they sang softly. Just as her friends and family sang the final verse, she whispered her final words, I go to prepare a place for you. Flags flew at half-mast in Auburn, She was buried with military honors in Fort Hill Cemetery in New York. 
Booker T. Washington delivered the eulogy. Many letters were found in Harriet's room after she passed. One letter had been refolded so many times that it had almost fallen apart. It was from the great leader of the abolitionist movement and Harriet's friend, Frederick Douglass. Here's what he wrote. Most that I have done and suffered in the service of our cause has been in the public, and I received much encouragement at every step of the way. You, on the other hand, have labored in a private way. I have had the applause of the crowd and the satisfaction that comes of being approved by the multitude, while most that you have done has been witnessed by a few trembling, scared, and foot-sore bondmen and women whom you have let out of the house of bondage and whose heartfelt God bless you has been your only reward. The midnight sky and the silent stars have been the witness of your devotion to freedom and of your heroism. Here's Jay Meredith, whose great-great-grandfather owned the village store where Harriet Tubman got her forehead split open from a two-pound weight thrown by the slave owner. Anybody that would know anything about Harriet Tubman would have to um, recognize her as a true American hero. And here is the main reason why, is that if you think about Harriet Tubman, you're going to see an African-American woman in 1849, okay, when women had no rights, black women had less than no rights. She was five feet tall. She was illiterate. Again, she was enslaved. And she was able to accomplish feats that nobody else could accomplish. And to me, how can you not admire somebody like that? You know, I mean, you've got a woman who has everything in the world going against her. Everything. And I tell people when they come in here, you know, whether you're white, whether you're black, no matter, even if you have prejudices, if you look at an individual like a Harriet Tubman, you know, you have to admire, even sitting here telling the story, it gives me goosebumps. It is here, through Harriet Tubman's work in the Underground Railroad, where we can see both fugitive and free Americans, white and black, drawn by a cause that compelled them to come together. There have been times in American history when we have been able to form alliances cross-racial lines. The fact is that we don't hear as much about that as we ought to. And it's important that we do, because it's awfully hard to imagine that we can form racial alliances in the 21st century unless we understand that there is a strong tradition that we can draw upon. And although there have always been hostilities, there have always been difficulties across racial lines, there have also always been some people who were able and willing to put their fortunes and their lives on the line for other people. And I think that's a tradition that we need to draw on. That's a tradition of the Underground Railroad. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. Roll, Jordan, roll. My soul arrives in heaven, Lord, for the year when Jordan rolls. Everybody say roll, 
Jordan Road. This is Our American Stories, and the minute you hear that music, you're put into a time and a place. And Jesse and I often think we should be doing a two-hour special on just great soundtracks to movies, because the music is just so astounding and so good, and always suits the purpose. And again, that's the Godfather soundtrack. We love to talk about art here, and we love to talk about actors and musicians, and even comedians, our hour on Steve Martin, we urge you to go to Our American Network, go on the search button, and find that Steve Martin hour. It's terrific. There's no precedent for John Cazale. He's an anomaly in cinematic history. He appeared on the big screen, wholly formed, and immediately made an indelible imprint. And then, just as suddenly, six years later, he was gone. In that short time, he created four characters in five feature films. The Godfather, The Conversation, The Godfather Part 2, Dog Day Afternoon, and The Deer Hunter. Oh my goodness, that's crazy. That can still be regarded over 40 years later as benchmarks of film acting. He was Fredo, by the way, in The Godfather. And we'll get to that later, but I just wanted to give you an idea of who he was. John's work, like his life, cannot be accurately measured in duration, only in depth. The entirety of his screen time in all five movies boils down to mere minutes. But the more we see, the more we cannot look away. It isn't simply that he had the distinction of only appearing in masterpieces. It is that his performances within them are also masterpieces. Those who mistake celebrity for ability may question how good he really was, After all, he wasn't really a movie star. He was never billed above the title. But John Cazale is acting's best-kept secret. He played one of the most iconic characters in film history, as I'd said before, Fredo Corleone from The Godfather. Yet today, most people don't even know his name. To prove this point, a picture was shown of John Cazale playing Fredo to people walking the streets of New York City. Here's their reaction. You know who this guy is? Nope. Nope. Something from The Godfather. He was the oldest one. He was a little slow. They they sounded betrayed. Yes? Yes. Did he play Fredo? Yeah, Fredo. Oh, Fredo. Uh, Fredo. 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 
Fredo. Do you remember? Do you, do you, do you know uh, what the actor's name is? Well, his name was Fredo. Shoot. Uh, wait, I'm gonna get it. I'm gonna get it. Oh, I love this guy too. What was his name? He was very good. Fredo. I know it was you, Fredo. I know it was you, Fredo. The actors John Cazale supported Robert De Niro, Gene Hackman, Al Pacino, and Meryl Streep among them all said working with John Cazale made them better. He greatly influenced many others, such as Steve Buscemi, Sam Rockwell, and the late Philip Seymour Hoffman, who were of the following acting generations. If the Academy Awards can be regarded as an indicator of climactic excellence, John has an impeccable track record, not just for himself. He was never mentioned in the nominations for his acting, probably because the Academy never caught him doing any. It's a well-known bit of movie trivia that all five films in which he appeared were nominated for Best Picture, and three of them received the Oscar. Further, he appeared posthumously in archival footage in The Godfather Part Three, which was also nominated for Best Picture, maintaining his perfect record. He is the only actor in history to have this distinction. John Cazale was more than eager to explore the dark, damaged sides of his characters. In doing so, he presented us with a human instead of a type. Let's fast forward to a scene from Godfather 2, where we hear a little bit about John's gift as an actor and his approach to his craft. We open with a scene between John playing Fredo and Al Pacino playing his brother, Michael. Mike, you don't come to Las Vegas and talk to a man like Mo Green like that. Fredo, you're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. By the way, the subtlety in his acting uh, is was so amazing, the, the emotional depth of it. When Al arrives in Las Vegas and John is already there and he's got the band set up and the hookers. He does like this kind of, the band is playing, he does this kind of thing and it's just so brilliant. I mean, that dance. Welcome to Las Vegas. Well, his idea, right? And Al says, get rid of them. Get rid of them, Fredo. Hey, Mike. Uh, Fredo, I'm here on business. I leave tomorrow, and I get rid of them. Time. And the look on his face was so amazing—the emotional depth of it. A whole kind of person became present in that one reaction to Al ordering him about like that. Hey, come on, Ram! That's where John fit in so miraculously, because all of that vulnerability, all of that pain that was in John as a man is suddenly connecting with us on a level that we never thought possible. In the late 50s, we both were in acting class together, studying with Peter Cass. Peter Cass was quick to see what you might be ashamed of in yourself and in your background, and to point out that this was part of who you were and that you needed every part of yourself. The idea of only presenting yourself in the best light was anathema to him. I mean, if you look at John's work, you see how willingly he went to the dark side <laughs> and how capable he was of doing that. John felt very strongly that finding the character, you had to find the pain first, where that character was in pain, where he hurt. He felt that that was the major motivation and that would translate into positive choices as an actor. 
I think the artist is born a suffering child, and uh, there are all kinds of reasons for children to suffer, and I, I don't know exactly what it was that was John's reason, but I could venture a guess, certainly. It was probably, you know, a strong, overbearing father that was difficult. The life of John Cazale for the hour. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. We continue with the life of John Cazale. And you're listening to the soundtrack of The Deer Hunter. It's beautiful. And by the way, that that point that somebody made before, that he knew how to find the pain in the character, that was what Cazale did. And in doing so, I think found pain in all of us. Cazale's five films received 40 Oscar nominations. In addition... Fourteen of the performances by actors he supported were nominated for Oscars. This is not a coincidence. He enriched every film in which he acted. He inspired every actor with whom he worked. Far more impressive than John's association with Oscar-nominated films was the acting he did in them. But what he did was something beyond acting, what can be called transcendent acting or non-acting. Sir Ben Kingsley observed, The camera is allergic to acting. John's characters tend to just stick in our minds because as opposed to just seeing them, we feel as if we're meeting them. For those who weren't alive when The Godfather premiered, it is hard to quantify its impact on the culture. There is no contemporary equivalent. The only comparison is the arrival of the Beatles in America. The opening of The Godfather, like the arrival of the Beatles, was similar to a cultural earthquake, Nothing was quite the same afterwards. And like the Beatles, The Godfather has remained contemporary. Shortly after the film premiered, a joke started to circulate. Someone would say, In our family, he's Fredo. Everyone would laugh because they knew exactly what that meant. The subject of the joke was weak, inept, a bit stupid perhaps, most certainly a loser. No one ever said, In our family... He's Salonzo or Clemenza or Tessio. What would that mean? But Fredo, everyone knew. It was vivid, clear, perfect. Because the actor who portrayed Fredo, someone named John Cazale, made him vivid, clear, and perfect. From the moment he comes into view in The Godfather, he commands the screen, not through bombast or bravura, but with sublime subtlety. In the midst of the noisy activity of the wedding celebration, he slowly and quietly approaches the table where Brother Michael and Kay are sitting. Kay was played by Diane Keaton. When he appears, he is quite drunk. But John is too fine an actor to play drunk. Instead, he plays a drunken man trying to appear sober. He steps carefully and slowly, puts his hand on Kay's chair to steady himself, and kneels down in his tux to get eye level 
with Michael and Kay. How are you, Fredo? Fredo? My brother Fredo? This is Kay Adams. Hi. How are you doing? Hello. This is my brother Mike. Are you having a good time? Huh? Yeah. Yeah, this is your friend, huh? <laughs> the whole scene takes 21 seconds, but it tells us vital information. Fredo is a lover and a family of killers. With his inhibitions lowered by alcohol, we see he is sweet, he's affectionate, he's soft-spoken. He doesn't belong there. He's not looking for power. He's looking for love and acceptance. And maybe, just maybe, a little bit of respect. But the scene where Don Corleone, played by Marlon Brando, is shot in front of his son Fredo, Brando was reportedly so impressed with John's commitment to his role that he laid in the street off camera while John shot his close-ups to afford him the greatest sense of reality in the scene. After The Godfather, John was cast as Stan, the assistant to an introverted, paranoid surveillance consultant in The Conversation, a psychological mystery thriller written, produced, and directed by Francis Ford Coppola and starring Gene Hackman. Here's Coppola, Meryl Streep, and Philip Seymour Hoffman. He was able to tackle anything that came up in the first Godfather. Then I wrote a role for him in the conversation. <laughs> He's a nice guy for a cop. I knew what was just a character of an assistant would suddenly come to life as a real character. The conversation was a cult film. People already had it on as their favorite film of all time. Especially people who wanted to show that they were impervious to the mass taste, you know, like it's not the Godfather that I love the most. It's... I would almost bet money that all the actors that worked with him were inspired by what he did on the day. To take it that much further, to be that much more creative or, or risky uh, or personal. Because he seemed to be kind of uncomfortably vulnerable in mean, everything he did. And that always makes people go, I think I gotta work a little harder. <laughs> I think I better rethink what I'm doing here. Because this guy's really going for it. This guy's really going for it. And that was Philip Seymour Hoffman, that last clip. John took roles that no actor would want, and by virtue of his performances, he managed to turn them into parts every actor wished he'd played. Here's Al Pacino and Meryl Streep. Streep starred with Cazale in his last film, The Deer Hunter, and was also his longtime girlfriend. Fredo, come with me. It's the only way out of here tonight. Roth is dead. Fredo. He became whoever it was he was playing. And he did that by asking questions, because he taught me about asking questions and not having to answer them. That's the beauty. What's wonderful about it is you open the door to things. Directors used to call him 20 questions. He was never, never, never satisfied with just the outlines of a character or just filling out the expected thing. He got so much from the delving into things. It was a lesson in itself. I think I learned more about acting from John than anybody. That's a pretty heady statement. That's Al Pacino saying he learned more about acting than anybody, and he studied with Lee Strasberg, and he studied with Uta Hagen, the two masters of the New York theater and of film. Amazing. There are moments in each of John Cazale's performances so real, so vulnerable, 
that one wonders if he should be watching. Unlike most actors, there was never an instance in any of his performances when John was winking at the audience, trying to signal that the character's deficiencies didn't apply to him personally. Here's Francis Ford Coppola on the infamous I'm smart and I want respect scene from The Godfather 2 between Cazale and Pacino. Cazale's haunting countenance and strong portrayal of weak characters is unmatched. I remember when we shot that scene and uh, and, and thinking that uh, we had shot something really that had come to life and was extraordinary and, and very definitely the way Cazale used the chair because that chair was there and certainly you could slump in it and everything but somehow he used it to express what was the point in a way that um, I had never anticipated. I've always taken care of you, Fredo. Taken care of me? You're my kid brother and you take care of me? Did you ever think about that? Did you ever once think about that? Send Fredo off to do this, send Fredo off to do that. Let Fredo take care of some Mickey Mouse nightclub somewhere. Send Fredo to pick somebody up at the airport. I'm your older brother, Mike, and I was stepped over. That's the way Pop wanted it. It ain't the way I wanted it. I can handle things. I'm smart. Not like everybody says. Like dumb. I'm smart and I want respect. He's such an imp. You know, he's so irresponsible and he'd be so desperate, he's so anxious to get his piece of the pie and to be respected. A heartbreaking scene. And what are we talking about? We're talking about a ter- totally antisocial, probably terrible man. And Cazal uh, broke your heart. He really let himself out there. He's really vulnerable. You know, it's not easy to play weak. You know, if you get the script for The Godfather, you know, every young actor is going to want to play Sonny or Michael, you know? They're not going to want to play Fredo. You want to be strong, and you want to be, hmm. So you want to say, look how talented I am. Weakness is something that a lot of actors, I think, are afraid to play. They'll, they'll play weak men, but they'll do it in a really sort of showboaty way to let you know that they're not weak, that it's a performance. And Cazal was just so disinclined to do that. And by the way, we're disinclined to do that in our lives, too. We all do it. We know it. And we do it with our friends. We do it with our family members. And I think this is why we seek refuge in art. It is the one place where we can then talk to people about characters and talk about ourselves while we're doing it. And that's why we spend a lot of time here in art and storytelling. And this is Our American Stories. And when we come back, more on the life of John Cazale. One of the great actors you know but don't know. Who changed, I believe, and I know Greg who helped and did this piece, changed acting as we know it for some of the great actors in America. More after these messages.
We're talking about John Cazale for the hour. And we love talking about art here on Our American Stories and Music. And what's beautiful about movies is the intersection of screenwriting, so there's the writing, there's that human talent, almost that operatic talent of the actor, and then, of course, there's the music. And again, one day we're going to be putting together, and I hope real soon, just an hour or two on soundtracks and the stories of the people behind those soundtracks, because a soundtrack can make or break a movie. And you're listening to the soundtrack from The Deer Hunter. And by the way, to remind you, Cazale, well, he created four characters in five feature films that I think can still be regarded as benchmarks of film acting. And the films he were in, all of them received Oscar nominations. And that's pretty unbelievable. John's art was ahead of the curve in the evolution of acting. That's what made him special. When the 20th century began with silent movies, acting was demonstrative, it was demonstrative, it was exaggerated. Lots of big gestures. It was still based in the traditions of the stage. Because on the stage, you've got to hit the back row. And thus, the big gestures. As the technology developed, first with the introduction of sound, and then with the refinements in the process itself, actors came to understand they could be subtler in their performances. Still, the desire to emote, to show off, was always present. During the 1950s, actors such as two of John's idols, Montgomery Cliff and Marlon Brando, embraced Stanislavski's method of acting. And he's a Russian critic and teacher of acting. And began to explore the underlying motivations and emotions in their characters. So in other words, going from representational acting to, well, getting under the skin acting. This resulted in greater realism along with heightened emotionalism, which showed itself in climactic moments. John didn't push anything. Instead, he could invite people in and compel them to draw closer to the character he was playing. But back to the story. What John knew was that our perception of someone comes from nonverbal input, much more than verbal. How many times have you said, quote, I met this guy and he seemed okay, but there was just something about him I didn't like. It was nothing he said or did, that's for sure. It was just a sense that you got about him. That sense comes from all the energy generated by what the guy is thinking and feeling, all the things that make up his history, and therefore his personality. It works the same way in acting, and Cazelle knew how to find this life in his characters. Paradox was always present in his work. He didn't play good guys. All his characters had flaws, some more than others. He played a pimp, a thief, and perhaps a killer, and a braggart who waved a gun in the faces of his friends and, at least once, punched a woman. The most normal of his characters was a professional voyeur. Yet somehow, we have affection for each of these men, or at least an acceptance of them, and that's because John never judged the character he was playing. He understood the character, all the characters. Such understanding can only come through exploring their humanity, their motivation. Here's Steve Buscemi 
and co-star Al Pacino discussing Cazale's role as bank robber Sal in Dog Day Afternoon. Just from the moment you see him on screen in Dog Day Afternoon, he's so... Um, You're the manager? He's so strange looking, you know, really intense face. And then, you know, the, the receding hair, uh, hairline, the huge forehead, and then the long hair. Um, I had just never seen a character like that on film before. Just keep talking like nothing was wrong. I remember we were casting, and Sidney Lament wanted a, a 19-year-old boy. To, he thought that would be very important, and he was sort of right. I'd been reading a lot of people for it, and Al kept asking me to, uh, to read John. So, of course, Sidney, I would think, well, John, that's not what I'm thinking, John Cassell, no, the guy who did Fredo, no. Finally, because I've got such respect for Al, John came in, and I was just stunned. He could not have looked wronger. And then he read. And it was just the most extraordinary connection. I ain't going back to that prison, Sonny. I mean, I got the image of him in my mind, you know, that image of that character, oh, man. Everything he did, the hair, that, yeah. the Watch movement. Yo, come with me. Watch him. Sit down, sit down. The intensity. Wow. You know, he's very intense, uh, but, but nervous. I mean, you felt at any time that he could really lose it. Stay right there! Cazale is scary in that movie. He completely erases the dynamic that he had with Pacino in the Godfather movies. Hey, you, manager! Don't get ideas! I bark. That man there, see him? He bites. You don't ever really believe when you're watching the movie that Pacino is going to kill someone. Cazal you think might. There's a way out of this. I'm listen, telling you, there's a listen, way out of this. Were you serious about what you said? About what? About throwing... About throwing those bodies out the door. That's what I want, and you know, that's what I want him to think. Come on, what you think? Because I'll tell you right now, I'm ready to... Well, I'll tell you something, when he says that line, you believe he's ready to kill somebody just out of fear, you know? And, and I think that, that intensity level's in his eyes throughout the entire film. He, he provides that, it's right there, those eyes. It's like, they cut to him a lot in that movie. And it's because it's he's got that, he's got the stakes. And Lamette needs that to get the audience revved up. There's just something in that face that takes you into uh, an area that's very dark, personally dark, and heartbroken. Heartbroken and dark. And, well, that's Cazale. A compelling choice John made was to play Sal in this movie in the direction opposite that which most actors would choose. Typically, the psychotic gunman starts out soft-spoken and builds to a frenzy by the climax of the film. But here, instead, Sal is commanding at the start, barking orders at people, dominating them. Then, as the situation grows more complicated, he retreats inside of himself. And the quieter he gets, the more dangerous he becomes. And by the way, that's so complicated and so brilliant. And you would read a script, and there's no way you could come up with that. You know, when I first looked at a screenplay and a script for theater, and I studied acting for a long time, I just was so overwhelmed with all the choices you could make 
how to do it. It's not like reading a novel. When you read a novel, it's all there for us. But in the end, I agree with something a great acting coach once said. For the ordinary American, for the ordinary person, or even the average actor, it's best to just watch Shakespeare performed, because to read it is to miss the point. It's a blueprint for actors. And it's an emotional blueprint. And there's emotional data all over the place. But the average person can't see it. They can't see the subtext. They can't see the stage. They can't hear the music. And my goodness, Cazale could hear all of that. He could see all of it somehow. And that's what made him great. Also, what he did was these opposites. He, he was able to do the opposite. If you ever get to see On the Waterfront, there's a scene where Rod Steiger is going to sell out his brother. He's telling his brother, an aspiring possible boxing champ, to throw a fight for the mobsters. And you would think Marlon Brando would come through the seat and punch his brother. But all Brando does is the opposite. And all he says is, Charlie, Charlie. Like he was just disappointed. That's what made Brando great. It's what made Cazale great. This is Our American Stories, our final segment on the life of John Cazale after these messages. Friends say John Cazale had a great sense of humor. As with all other aspects of his acting, there was no effort to his humorous moments, no reach. He never signaled intent to be funny. He was completely real, but was capable of such subtle nuance. He catches us unexpectedly, and we laugh in spite of ourselves. To be sure, though, like in The Godfather, we are laughing at Fredo, this sad little drunken man, not with him. As it was with Charlie Chaplin's Little Tramp, he is not in on the joke. But there is such vulnerability to him that we almost feel embarrassed by our laughter. Let's go back to Cazelle's performance in Dog Day Afternoon. There isn't a sadder character than, than Sal in Dog Day Afternoon, and yet he's hilarious. Sal! Sal! What? Where are you? And it's not about funny lines at all. It's just, uh, I mean, from the haircut to the... Everything, everything about it is comic. Now, you got to understand something. If we leave the country, there's no coming back here. One of the funniest moments in the movie was completely unexpected. It was an improvised moment. Is there any special country you want to go to? Wyoming. No Wyoming. It's not a country. That's all right. I, I'm going to take care of it. Now, I don't know where that came from. I know that the take was almost ruined because I started to laugh, but I, thank God, didn't wreck the soundtrack. And Al almost broke up. You know, that's a laugh. If you want to get a laugh there, he would no more go for that, you know. 
And so because of that, it's just instead of, you know, he goes past the stage of, ha ha, Wyoming, that's not a country. He, he goes past that and you are forced into this sort of anxiety and sorrow for the guy. Even in the funniest characters that he played, there was also always something tragic in it. Indeed. Even in the most tragic characters, there was always something very funny. The character he's creating, I believe, is not some, is not necessarily something that, that that the director or the writer envisioned. I think what he brought to it ultimately was something that surprised the hell out of everyone on the day it happened. Yeah, you'd start a scene, and then you know it would never start. That was the beauty of it. Then you realize, don't start. There's no such thing. It's just it's a continuum. You know, everything is a continuum. And so he would just say, what'd you do today, Al? After I just said a line to him, you know, he said, you seem like you, uh, you said you were going to go to so-and-so. And he would get you there. And you would just do this dance until you found your way. And then the improvisations would start, which was what, and then the improvisations would go. And when they started to connect to what the reality of the scene was, he'd start to see. God, it was just, it was glorious. It was glorious. I've seen a ton of actors around John just give it a couple of minutes and you just see them go, what's that? What's he doing? How's he do that? No. Oh. What's the matter with you? You made me a promise, didn't you? Did you promise me something, huh? Yeah. Did you say either we get away clean or we kill ourselves? Did you say but that? But I'm not talking. Did you? I'm not talking about that. I do believe. Do you believe in keeping your promises? Huh? Yeah, but I'm not talking. Then does it still go? Yeah, it still goes. Well, what the f are you talking about? Other actors either, you know, rose to the occasion and they didn't. Pacino definitely did. I think Al is one of the great actors of my generation. And uh, John gets a big assist. He just, he constantly made him better and better. He was inspiring. I mean, you just got, you got, a, you got inspired by it. So you did it. You went. It. He made you better. After Dog Day Afternoon... Gazelle, a heavy smoker, was diagnosed with terminal cancer. At the time, casting had begun for the 1978 epic Vietnam War drama The Deer Hunter, starring Robert De Niro and Christopher Walken. Gazelle was cast as Stanley, a Pennsylvania steelworker. All scenes involving Gazelle were filmed first. Because of his illness, the studio initially wanted to fire him. Meryl Streep, John's girlfriend, whom he was living with at the time, and director Michael Cimino both threatened to walk away if they fired him. He was also uninsurable at the time, and according to Streep, Robert De Niro paid for his insurance because he wanted John Cazale in the film. It was going to be all right, Nicky. Go ahead, shoot. Show, I learned about when we were, Michael and I were meeting with actors and I was reading with some actors. At one point, uh, he wanted to use John and, and there was an issue about his being not well. John Cazal had already been diagnosed with cancer and was uninsurable. Obviously, if, if you die halfway through um, giving your performance, it's going to cost a great deal of money to recast you. And Bob De Niro went to bat for John he won't tell me because he's a very generous person, but I think he secured the bond on John's uh, participation. He was uh, sicker than we thought, but I wanted him to be in it. So Bob put his money down and 
got him in the film. And he was great in the movie. I mean, he was just beautiful in it. Hey, Stars! You. Where was you? Where, where was I? Where were you? Where was you? We had everything all set there. The beer, the fried axle. Am I right? right? Huh? Got a mustache. Yeah. Hey, looks pretty good. I think it's very clear that, that his talents were getting richer with every movie. I remember watching that movie. I just felt like I was there in that town with these guys. I, I didn't feel like they were acting. Anybody see my boots? He's saying, uh, you know, let me, let me your boots. Let me your boots and... Uh, De Niro's like, no, man. Hey, Mike, let me borrow your spares, huh? Your extra pair? No, Stan. What do you mean, no? Just what I said, no. No means no. Some friend. You're some friend, you know that? You gotta learn, Stanley. Every time you come up here, you got your head up your ass. Maybe he likes the view from up there, huh? He says, uh, he says, Stan, you see this? This is this. This is this. This ain't something else. This is this. From now on, you're on your own. Hey, you know your trouble, Mike, huh? Nobody ever knows what the f*** you're talking about. This is this. What the hell is that supposed to mean? This is this. You can watch the movie and the scenes that, that he's in and, and just watch him and be thoroughly entertained or really moved. And that was Steve Buscemi. John Cazale died before The Deer Hunter was released. He was 42. No story about John Cazale is complete without mentioning his girlfriend, and again, a young actress at the time named Meryl Streep. But the most amazing thing to see was Meryl during all of this and the way she was with him and by his side right, right through the whole thing. Meryl, she was with him to the end. And she, at the hospital at the end, she was an angel. She was... I so admired how, how she behaved. It was, it was very beautiful. It was very, he was a very fortunate guy to have someone who loved him that much during his last days. When I saw that girl there with him like that, I thought, there's nothing like that. I mean, that's, that's it for me. As great as she is in all her work, that's what I think of when I think of her, that moment. That's what I think of. Here's Al Pacino sharing a story about his friend. I was doing a play called The Basic Training of Pablo Hummel on Broadway. And it was a really great role. And I had, I had done things with it, and I had gotten the Tony Award, and I was really, uh, you know, I remember John was coming to see it. And I don't like to know when anyone's in the house, but I knew John was in the house, right? And every single thing I did, every scene I did, I was trying to impress John. And I knew I'm doing this. I'm saying this. I'm not doing this. I'm trying to impress John. Yeah. And uh, it was over. And I was really unhappy because I knew I hadn't done And John came back. <laughs> and he said, it's very impressive. <laughs> very impressive. I thought, yes, John. I said, you know what? I said, he was so graceful, though. He was so gracious about it all. But I, I said, you know, I... I I knew you were there, and I was trying to... I was doing everything twice as much as I had to do it, you know. He says, it was good, Al. It was good. It was good. He says, you don't know. You don't realize that, you know, you've been there. But I knew I had. 
So I was very, you know, he was like one of my idols, so that when he was coming to see me, it was, uh, that's, that's, you give all out, and that's the worst thing you can do, is try to impress your, your friends who you love. Yeah, imagine how good John Cazell was, though. Al Pacino was nervous and wanted to impress him. Here's one final story about John from Steve Buscemi. I had a really weird experience, uh, surreal. I did uh, a voice on uh, The Simpsons where I played a bank robber. So I'm watching The Simpsons when it aired, and my partner, they, they did a likeness of uh, John Cassell. I was like humbled. I was like, oh my God, I'm acting with John. I don't know. I just, I like really felt proud. <laughs> I was like, hey, I really did, you know, I really did become an actor and this proves it. <laughs> Screenwriter and director Israel Horowitz, who knew and loved John well, who found the same astonishment in him that so many others had, may have discovered the ideal summation when he called his friend, quote, a small perfection. And so he was. And in his films, so he is. The Life of John Cazale. This is Our American Stories. Great job on this script, Greg, as always. Great job, team. Let's go out with The Godfather.